If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Luke uh, chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 25 through, no, 35 through 48. And I've entitled our time in the Word this morning, Advent, Faithfully Waiting on the Return of Our Faithful God. And if you uh, missed the first three minutes of the service, uh, Advent begins today. And it's not something that we're commanded to do in Scripture, uh, but the early church has often marked these four Sundays leading up to Christmas as a, a season of waiting. And our goal in uh, waiting and, and being reminded that we're awaiting people, uh, it's to work against uh, that pull both in our hearts and in the culture around us towards impatience, towards forgetting uh, that this world and this life that we live, that it's not it, that, th that there is something great that's going to happen at the return of Jesus. And so uh, this week, we're going to be looking at what it means to wait faithfully. Um, next week, we'll look at what it means to wait in sorrow. The week after that, we'll look at what it means to wait with hope. And uh, we'll look at what it means to wait no more. And so this is Luke chapter uh, 12. And Jesus often talks about his second coming especially when he makes, um, when he gets into Jerusalem, kind of leading up to uh, Palm Sunday, Jesus begins to talk about his second coming. And so um, we're, we're reading uh, this section here. Here's God's word. Stay dressed, ready for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men and women who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch of the night and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said to him, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household and give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Amen. Pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for your word and thank you for uh, your kindness to us in it. Thank you, Jesus, that it is your good pleasure to reveal the kingdom and to uh, build us up after your image and your likeness. And you do this, Lord, through your word. And so thank you, Jesus, for talking 
incessantly about your second coming. May we be a people and become a people who uh, are practicing faithful uh, waiting. Would you do this, Lord? Forgive us of our sins and be our teacher this next few minutes. We pray in your son's name. Amen. So um, Jason Gibson, in his book, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, he writes, as early as Eden, that's the first page of the Bible, God's people have been awaiting people. God made a promise back in the garden that permanently oriented his people towards the future. It was through the promise of a coming, conquering son. And from that point on, God's people have been marked by patiently waiting. Then he gives you an example of Abraham, who was promised that through you, the Lord will make you a great nation. But Abraham and Sarah did not become parents overnight. They had to wait 25 years before Isaac was born. That Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, he didn't instantly get a wife and start having the, the, the sons who would form the 12 tribes. He had to work seven years to get Rachel, who he, he wanted Rachel, but he got Leah. And then Laban tricked him again and made him honor her that week and commit to working another seven years. He didn't become the father of Israel overnight. You think about Naomi when her husband and her two sons died. She had to wait to see if the line of the Messiah will, will, will travel through her. That she had to travel back to Bethlehem and Ruth had to go with her and they had to wait to see if Boaz would redeem them. If he was the nearest kinsman redeemer, they, they had to wait. You think about David who is from their loins. He was anointed king when he was a boy in 1 Samuel 16, but David had to wait until he was 30 years old to become the king. 2 Samuel 5. David was promised that he would have a son who would sit on the throne forever. And that promise was not fulfilled in Solomon. David had to wait until his greater son, namely Jesus, was born. All of them were looking forward to and waiting for this coming deliverer, and they all were looking forward to the coming son. In the New Testament, we're awaiting people also. Jesus has come, but he has ascended, and he tells us he's coming again. And so we, like the Old Testament saints, are waiting for Christ's advent, for his final arrival. If we're going to be stable and maturing Christians, the Bible calls us to wait in faithfulness. Not squandering our time, not squandering our gifts, not being deceived by the world that it isn't happening not getting so comfortable here that we miss that there is a city whose builder and maker is God. Not forgetting that one day as history as we now know it will end when Jesus returns on the clouds at the sound of a trumpet and he comes to make all things new. The Bible calls us to pray for that day. 
to live in light of that day and to live faithfully right now as we wait on that day. And our passage this morning is, I think Jesus wants to help us to wait faithfully. We're an impatient society. We're making jets that'll get you from New York to London in 90 minutes. Why? <laughs> I mean, like, what are you gonna do if you get there six and a half hours early? I mean, what, what do you do, right? A microwave culture, we, we don't like to wait. You think about pornography and that horrific in industry and at its core under the layers of addiction, we don't master the art of waiting, of waiting, of waiting. That if we can't wait to get to London, if we can't wait an extra few minutes on our food, how do we think we're going to be waiting on the Lord? And so what Jesus wants to do is like, hey, let, let me help you wait faithfully. And so the first thing to wait faithfully, we must remember that Jesus is certainly returning. He's, it, it's certain. Now, you don't have to be a, an English teacher to understand uh, Jesus's point of emphasis in our passage. If you just do a, a slow, kind of a plain reading of the text, you'll notice how often that he uses this refrain, when he comes, when he comes, the son of man is coming. If my master is delayed in coming, the master of that servant will come. It's all over the passage. Like that phrase is the one that dominates everything. Now, here's the thing about this text that Jesus actually repeats this arrival, this arrival, this arrival, this return, this return. He repeats it numerously across three different parables. Now, uh, notice what Peter says in verse 41. Peter, he says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for us all? So, so that's letting us know that, that these are parables. Now, Jesus gives us, I think, three parables. In the first parable, which you see, I think, in, in verses 35 through 38, it's the parable of a master who goes to a wedding. And it doesn't say it's the, it's the master's wedding. He just goes away to celebrate his friend's marriage. And when he goes, he leaves his servants at home and he goes away. So that's the first parable, right? But then notice the switch in verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left, let his house be broken into. That's a different parable. He, he's, he's switching metaphors here, so to speak. And then it's another one in, in verses 42 through 48, because now the master goes, but he leaves a manager over the servants in the house. And what Jesus repeats in all three of those parables is someone goes away and they stay gone for a while and then he comes back and he might come back in the first watch, the second watch or the third watch. But blessed is the servant that's ready, that, that, that's at the door when he knocks. But he also says his return is going to be like a thief. You ever got you ever had a thief break into your house? We have. Well, they just come on your property. 
And you're like, man, if I would have just been looking at my camera, I could have I could have said something to him through the speaker. But these kind of come when you don't expect. And Jesus is saying he's going to his coming is going to be like that. And finally, in his coming, there will be a reckoning to how his managers handle the responsibility of caring for his household. Now, why the repetition? It's because Jesus wants us to know that he is certainly returning. It's a bit unsettling, saints, I'll be honest, that Jesus talks about his return so much. And some of us will still be unprepared. Did, did, did you catch that? He talks about it over and over and over and over again. And even though he's screaming this, somehow, some way, some of us will be unprepared. Now, why? What is it that, that, that draws us from spiritual mindedness? What is it that, that lulls us to sleep? What is it that, that, that numbs our sensibilities around the grand arrival of Jesus? And he doesn't necessarily answer that here. And so you have to step back and say, okay, Jesus, when you talk about the second coming in other places, can we get behind that and understand why it's so hard to be ready? You go to Matthew 24. He says, see to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come and say, I am the Christ. You will hear about wars and rumors of wars and nations fighting and famines and earthquakes and persecution. And many will be led astray. And he says this, because of all of this, the love of many will grow cold. Did you catch that? Because of turmoil and crisis and hardship and suffering and false teachers who don't tell you that Jesus is returning, some of us, we can't take it. We grow weary in waiting. It feels like it's never, ever happening. And so our love wanes. But that's not it. In Matthew 25, the kingdom of heaven is like 10 women who, who went to meet the bridegroom. And five women were wise and five women were foolish. Five of them had oil in their lamps and five of them did not have oil. And the five who did not have oil went to these five, give us some oil. And these five says, no, you can't have our oil, then we won't have oil. So these five go and get their oil outside of the house. But the master comes home while they're gone and the door is locked and they're locked outside. In other words, they delayed getting ready as opposed to being ready. They thought we can get it all together at the last minute as if tomorrow is promised to you. Matthew 24, Jesus says his return will be like the days of Noah. People will be marrying and being given into marriage. And then the judgment of God will come suddenly and overtake them. Luke 17, his return will be like Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, where the angels show up and pull Lot out and Lot and his wife are leaving. And the command was not to look back. Do not look back to the city that is being destroyed. And what you realize is that that Lot's wife's heart was still tethered to the city, even though her body was not. And so she looked back. She could not see the city whose builder and maker is God. She could not see this better place. And, and that's what Jesus is saying, that that's why it's so hard. 
Because wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, hardship. And some of us just kind of say, you know what? He ain't coming. Others were doing good things like starting families and having children and going to work, right? And investing in the stock market. We're doing these good things, but they blind us from the main thing. Still others, right, are like Lot's wife. This world and the pleasures of the world and the comforts of the world, they compete with Lord, the Lordship of Christ. This is why Jesus repeats his certain coming. Because there are manifold things that ensnare us to make us forget it. And saints, this is where Advent is a servant of us, to us. It's a time of year where we recalibrate. The early saints saw Advent not just as a time of waiting, but also as a time of repentance. But we examine ourselves and we examine passages like this. And we say, Lord, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of not living with self-control. I'm guilty of not loving neighbor. I'm guilty of, of, of not cherishing your word and your church. I'm, I'm guilty of competing priorities. And we go back again to the foot of the cross. Like that's what Advent's supposed to do. And others, it's not a recalibrating. You're not deceived. This life is hard. And you're ready for Jesus to make all things new. You, know, you need no prompting. You're putting things back together. You're trying to make ends meet. And so it's hard. And so you look at some of us, how can you find home in this place? Look at what's happening to me and my body. And Advent serves you well. By saying, sister or brother, you ain't crazy. You own to something that we all need to be on. This is why the early church made creeds that we just confessed. We believe in Jesus's identity. We believe in his work. We believe in his resurrection. We believe in his ascension. And we believe that he will return again to judge the living and the dead. It's, it's, it's why it's in our call to worship for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And what does grace do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-control as we wait for our blessed hope. It's why we just sang the hymn when he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne. Do you hear what's, what's reverberating through our scripture readings and our confessions and our songs? He is coming. And that's one of the ways that we want to help you not lose sight of that. How do you get that truth in your own heart? Apart from us, right? Which moves us to the second Thing that I think we see in the text. Jesus doesn't just emphasize that he's coming, which he does. 
he also discloses what he's going to be like when he comes. And this, too, I think, is to help us wait faithfully as we gaze upon what he will be like when he returns. That breaks into the here and now, and it helps us right now wait faithfully. And here's the second point to wait faithfully. We must recognize that Jesus is returning in all of his glory. It was shrouded a bit when he took on flesh, right? And you saw glimpses of his power, of his might, of his majesty. But for the most part, he kind of veiled that around. He got tired. He let creatures kill him. You know, like, come on. But when he returns, it's not going to be shrouded. All of his glory will be on display. So give you two examples. Uh, would you agree that some things can get better with time? All right. Some of you maybe think of wine. It just gets better with age, right? Or love. It gets better with age. But then I got kids in here. They don't know nothing about wine or love as we know it, right? Uh, what about leftovers? <laughs> leftovers, right? Y'all ever had a meal that was like so good, like on a, on a Friday night, you couldn't eat all of it. And you say, you know what? I'm going to put this in the refrigerator, put my name on it. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to eat these leftovers. And then you eat them the next day and they are like bussing. They like fire. Like they are just way better than what they were, right? That, that's a thing out there. You know that, right? So there's a food scientist and her name is Dr. Shelke. And they study this because people debate. Leftovers can't be better. And so food scientists, they actually study this. And so she writes several, not all foods, sushi would not apply, or like a salad that you pour the dressing on and try to eat that the next day, that ain't good, right? But she goes on to say some foods are better when heated up the next day. Foods like meats and stews seasoned with herbs and spices, they undergo the malleard reaction, whatever that is, when heat is applied. The sugar and the carbon molecules in the protein react with the amino acids to produce 24 known reactions. And when these things are cooled, a gelatinous material forms. Y'all ever seen like the fat that gets kind of congealed? Flavor is in that gel, she writes. That gel is reconstituted inside the protein. And when you reheat them, the reaction starts all over again. Only those flavors are now more intense and more profound. Something that was good, it just appears to be like way better than I thought. Hold that thought, right? Some things can also be more terrifying with time. In the first Marvel Black Panther, you might remember how the movie starts. The movie starts with some kids on the basketball court playing basketball. And then this spaceship kind of comes to the top of this apartment complex. And you can see like the little blue lights under it. And you see these kids, this one kid kind of looks up 
And then the camera kind of takes you inside the room, uh, inside the apartment. And what you discover is that these two Wakandan female warriors knock on the door and they say, you better open that because if you don't open it now, they're not knocking the next time. Right. And then you realize the Black Panther, T'Chaka, this is the father of T'Challa. He shows up and he's he's coming to see his brother in Jobu. And someone has stolen vibranium out of Wakanda. And they it they had to have had help from a Wakandan to get them into Wakanda. And the Black Panther, T'Chaka, has to confront his own brother, the prince in Jobu, because he's guilty of treason. His own brother, his own brother let a criminal in. And then you see this interaction and T'Chaka has to arrest his brother and take his brother back to Wakanda to stand trial. And then the, the, the scene goes down and you see this little boy still looking in the air and then you see the spaceship leaves, leave. Well, fast forward, later in the movie, you discover what really happened. That Njobu did not want to go and be arrested. He pulled out a gun to shoot and the Black Panther had to kill his own brother. Well, his brother had a son outside and his son was Eric Killmonger. And the next time you see Eric Killmonger in that movie, he is not a little boy anymore. He is ripped up, jacked up, massive. And he is a killer. He is an assassin. And he's coming for justice. Now, hold those two images, leftovers that get better, and Eric Killmonger, who grows up into this warrior, hold those in the back of your mind. Beloved, this is a helpful way to think about what Jesus is doing here in our passage. He's, gonna, he's telling us, when I return, I'm going to be so much more beautiful and gracious than you thought. And I'm going to be so much more terrifying than you can ever imagine. Now, let me show you when he says, look, he's going to be more gracious and more beautiful than you could have ever hoped for. Look at what he says in verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and he will have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Look at verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. Now, look at those two verses side by side, and here's what you discover. Some servants, when Jesus returns, they're going to get way more than they could have imagined. Not only do they get, right, when Jesus comes back, they don't have to stand watch anymore. You ain't got to stay up all night looking. Is he coming? Is he coming? No, 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 he's here. Go rest. You don't have to keep your lamps running anymore through the night. No, 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 no. The light of the world is back. You don't have to keep your loins girded for action because the Prince of Peace is back and there is no war. 
That think of what it's going to mean when the Messiah returns. That these servants can now rest from their labors. They can now say, Master, tell us about everything you've been doing. Show us this new world that you've been creating. Let us see it. We want to be with you. Do you hear the joy there? And then Jesus does something no household code in the ancient Near East have ever done. The Master makes his servants sit at table and then he girds his own loins and then he says you sit down now you let me serve you you come to this meal that i'm gonna make do you hear it it would be enough for jesus to die for our sins he's gonna do more He's going to come back and serve us. So on my sabbatical, we did a lot of great things and I'm so thankful. And I've tried not to overly talk about it and make that the center of what we were doing here. But man, one of the things that I love most was um, being with my family and getting to fish and travel and rest and also read and I read broadly. Um, my favorite book outside of the Bible that I read was a book written by an Asian woman. Her name is Ilion Wu. And the name of the book is Master, Slave, Husband, Wife. And I got a chance to meet her. Providentially, she was here at the Jackson Book Festival. And my daughter said, hey, daddy, she's going to be here. Who's going to be here? This lady whose book you've been making us listen to, right? And I got a chance to meet her and ask her questions, but it's a true story. It's a story of William and Ellen Craft, who in 1848 escaped slavery from Macon, Georgia. Now, a lot of slaves escaped slavery, some through the Underground Railroad, hiding. Others like Henry Box Brown, he was so OG. You know what he did? He mailed himself inside of a box. He got a box and put himself in it and mailed it north and got out like, aha, I'm here, I'm free, right? Some people died doing that. Um, but they, their plan was beautiful. They hid in plain sight. She was an excellent seamstress. And so her plan was to dress up like a man. And her husband was a darker skinned slave and he would pose as her slave. Now, for this plan to work, she gotta look like a white man. Well, because her mother was raped by a white slave owner and her grandmother was raped by a white slave owner, she passed for white. And so she had a hat, she made a suit, she made it tight to hide any indication that that's a woman and they got on a train and they made the journey from Macon all the way to freedom and no one knew that that was husband and wife when she got to Philadelphia the first home she went to was the home of some white Quakers and here's what Ilion Wu writes about what Ellen said and so Ilion is, is reading historical sources. She's also reading the small book 
that this couple published together of their story, they traveled with Frederick Douglass. So they, they should be famous, right? But they're not, they're unknown. And so here's what Ellen, um, the wife, when she was taken to the home of the Quakers, she said, I'm not gonna stop here. I have no confidence whatsoever in white people. They're only trying to trick us and to get us back into slavery. And then an older white Quaker woman who lived in that house, her name was Mary. She grabbed Ellen's hand and said, how art thou, my dear? We are very glad to see thee and thy husband. Please come into the fire. Let me make you some tea. Ellen was still skeptical. And then Mary persisted, please sit by the fire. Please allow me to assist thee. And then Mary began to loosen Ellen's bonnet. And Mary said, do not be afraid. And Ellen recoiled. And then she says, I shall not hurt a single hair on thy head. Thou need not fear us. We would soon as send our own daughters into slavery before we send thee back. Then that Quaker invited her to the dinner table and began to fix her plate and serve her as a black woman. And then Wu writes, that Quaker woman's hands were the first white hands that came to her aid. She was mistreated by Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists. It was at the Quaker's table the first table that she sat at to be served. Mary's kindness worked like a bomb, and then Ellen burst into tears. It was there at that table that Ellen came to believe that there are good and bad persons of every shade and complexion. Did you hear her response? Did you hear of what it did to her to have the kingdom of the world turned upside down. Or this woman who's a slave is sitting at table and the one who was called master is the one serving. She burst into tears. It changed her heart. Do you believe that when Jesus returns, He's going to turn the kingdom of this world upside down. And he's going to look at you and say, I know it's been hard living down there. I know you've lived through hell down there. I know you've suffered. I know you've lost. But I'm home now. And you come around my table. And you come around this fire. And you let me serve you. And when Jesus gets in that servant posture at his arrival, it will undo all the hurt and heartache we've gone through on this side of glory. And you would think that it would stop there with Jesus just saying, I'm going to come and serve you. 
Did you catch the last parable? He actually says in verse 43, blessed is the servant whom the master will find doing when he comes. He says, truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And so just when you think you're going to come back and serve me at table, Jesus ain't done practicing humility. He's going to exalt us over all of his kingdom and say, rule with me, reign with me. I'm giving you dignity and authority and power and responsibility. You who were nothing, you now are my everything serving alongside of me. I told you, we got this myopic view of Jesus. You just came to die for my sins. And what Jesus is showing us in this parable, his servant, loving, gracious nature is going to echo into all of eternity. I told you, it's better than you thought. And he's going to be more terrifying than you can imagine. Did you notice what Jesus says? The master of that servant in verse 46 to 48 will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful and the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. And the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. All right, guys, so I don't exactly know everything that's going on here. I don't think Jesus is going to physically dismember people and say, hey, let me get that arm and throw it, right? I think what he's trying to say is I'm not going to be who you think I am when I return. I'm not returning in the womb of a woman. I'm returning on a war horse. I'm returning one to demonstrate wrath. Some will be cut off from the faithful. You will be cast into hell forever and others will know him, but will endure godly discipline based on what we knew in our own lives. That's the point What Jesus is saying. I'm going to be more terrifying than you think. Do you see? Some lavish with grace, some wrath, others gracious discipline, and it's all because he's returning in the fullness of his glory. Which moves us to an important question. How then are we the people that Jesus will serve? How then are we the people that will rest around his table? and have him wipe the tears from our eyes? How then do we become the people who delight in his coming? How then do we become those people and not the ones who are dismembered and who are cast out? How do we become those people? Which moves us to our last point. To wait faithfully, we must respond appropriately to his return right now right now. So there's a danger, you know, when people talk about the second coming of Jesus, it's really easy to try to want to pull a calendar out and pinpoint the time. You know, you've probably seen books that have come out, hey, he's coming back on this day, and then this day comes and it's nothing, right? 
that some people, when we hear about the return of Jesus, we think what Jesus wants us to do is to sit back and to predict it on a calendar. But Jesus is going to say in Matthew, no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not even the son of man. He's going to say here, the son of man is going to come at an hour when you do not know. It's going to be like a thief, right? So clearly Jesus doesn't want us to be plotting his return on a calendar. You know what Jesus wants? He wants our character to be formed so that when he returns, whenever it is, we're ready. He's after character, not a calendar, but you're pinpointing stuff. And so notice the commands. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep. And then you get an example of what not to do. Do not be like those who abuse the servants and those under your authority. Do not be like those who lack self-control and are given over to drunkenness and all of these other things. And together, what he's commanding, stay alert. Keep your lamps burning. Stay dressed, ready for action. Don't abuse authority. Don't live recklessly, right? Those two pictures together form the picture of what it means to wait faithfully. What does waiting faithfully look like? It looks like loving neighbor. It looks like being self-controlled with our desires and actions. It looks like being ready, lamps lit, spiritual alertness. Now, these commands then mean that waiting is not passive. It's not aimless. It's not arbitrary. It's active. It's informed. It's shaped by God's lordship and his plan of redemption. I mean, how then do we become people who do this? You know, this passage is hard because it feels very um, command driven, if I might use that. Stay awake, command. Stay alert, command. Keep your loins girded, command. Keep your lamps burning, command. Don't beat your servants, command. Right? These are commands. And so part of me is like, come on, Lord. Who in this room can do this? Like, like, like if being alert is just upon us, then I'm done, right? Jesus asked the disciples, can you pray for me? And what did they do? They went to sleep. That's me. If it's just on me. And so how then do we do this? Here's what I want you to think about. Every command in this section implies the generosity of the master beforehand. Did you catch that? So this idea of uh, the, the language here is stay dressed for action. In the Greek is keep your loins girded. What in the world is that? So in Jesus's day, the men what wear, I'm just going to call it a dress. It, that's what it looked like. It just looked like a long dress that kind of come down to here. And that, that, that's your attire, your tunic. And you couldn't go to work, right? And do real work. Or you couldn't go to war with your tunic down to your ankle. And so to gird your loins meant that you would reach down and you would roll this thing up. 
and then you would tuck it inside of a belt and then you would do the same over here. Now you're unimpeded. Now you're alert. Now you are ready. But here's the thing. Notice what it does not say. It does not say go get your garment. It says the garment that I gave you as a good master. You gird that joker, right? He doesn't say go get the lamp and go get the oil. He says, no, keep, keep it. I've given you the lamp. I've given you the oil. I've given you the wick. He says, remain awake, not wake yourself up. Remain awake. Look, beloved, all three of those commands are spiritual metaphors. We've seen in scripture that we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We've seen in scripture that this world is dark and Jesus is the light of the world and he's come to give us spiritual sight. We've seen in scripture that we were hostile in mind doing evil deeds and in our conversion we were made new. Our minds and hearts were made awakened to the things of the Lord. Now, if you don't believe me, look how this passage ends. I think this is the most important section of the passage. Everyone to whom much was given, much is required. You catch that? That is not a throwaway verse. That's the master saying, I'm a good master. I clothe my people in my righteousness. I open their eyes to behold me in the law. I give you my spirit. I rescue your soul. I remove the scales from your eyes to see. Ah, ah, ah. Like the emphasis is on what God has already done. In light of what God has already done, cooperate with the gifts that your Father, Son, and Spirit has given and live a normal life cruciformed, repentant, godly life. When did Jesus give us much? It was at his first advent. When he humbled himself and took the form of a servant and lived the life we could not live and died the death that we owe. And died and was raised that we might be raised in him. And then he himself clothed us with power. He himself renewed our hearts and gave us a heart, hearts of flesh. He gave us promises. He gave us himself. And what Jesus is saying, saints, keep your eyes in both places. Be meditating upon my goodness, my kindness, my character, and all I've done in the first advent. Use the gifts and the means of grace that I am still giving you right now and keep your eyes on who I will be in the future. Be repentant. Turn again to the gospel. Love neighbor because we are greatly loved by God. You get what Jesus is saying? He's not calling you to do this by yourself. He's saying, saints, Rest in who I am and what I've done and be a normal, repentant, Bible-loving, grace-loving, truth-believing, Holy Spirit-controlled person. 
And whenever he comes, you're going to be ready. May the Lord help us all to wait faithfully. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word and uh, thank you for the privilege to unpack it. Father, some things are weighty and heavy uh, and more plain than others. And so, Holy Spirit, when I take my seat, would you continue to work in the hearts and lives of your people? They are yours. Conform us to the image of Jesus. Make us a waiting people. In your son's name we pray. Amen.